Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So set it in 92-point Castlon, make sure you have the emergency bloodwurst on hand, and join us on our journey through the truth and the complete discography. Good evening on this shortest evening, uh, as it is in fact Hogs Watch today, uh, and welcome to the complete discography where we are talking tonight about the twenty fifth book in the Discworld series, uh, The Truth. Um, Terry was a busy boy in the year two thousand and released two gigantic books full of very complicated plot, uh, and, and this is one of them. So, Anna, do you want to lead us off with our our silly titles? Sure. I'm Anna, and I'm junior reporter in charge of compiling humorous images and overlaying them with text. I am Justin, copy editor and vampiric reconstitutor. Hi, I am Taylor. I'm the resident weird guy who lives under the bridge and smells oddly like fish. And I am Aaron, recently assigned to the C-commerce desk. How much will reannual wine be going for yesterday in Lanker? My head hurts. And you may have noticed that we have a guest for the evening. Uh, Taylor, would you like to actually introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Taylor. I use he and pronouns. I'm on Twitter at Leviathan Files. I run Riverhouse Games. Uh, if you are looking for weird, queer tabletop games, you can go to riverhousegames.h.io. Uh, I also uh, produce the uh, Game Closet podcast on an unofficial hiatus right now, uh, but you can still go check the backlog uh, for a bunch of informal interviews with queer and LGBT plus tabletop RPG creators. I'm also getting into wrestling, so if you live in the Twin Cities area and want to go see some wrestling shows, hit me up. Yeah, uh, I've read a, a few Discworld books now. Um, Guards, Guards, Weird Sisters. There's another one that's escaping my mind. Uh, and then now this one. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh, experiment because, to be honest, the first way that I read through the Discworld series was whatever I could find at the library. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, which very much led me into a popcorn order thing. Although, you know, mm-hmm. I'm approaching 40 now, so... The, there were books that, that were published afterward that I got to read in chronological order. But, you know, the, the way you've jumped around is is very reminiscent of, of what I experienced at first. So mm-hmm. it, it'll be very interesting to hear, you know, your your takes sort of jumping into the middle of a couple of major meta plot things that are going on. <laughs> it's, it's also interesting because the truth, I've seen it recommended as a where to start in Discworld book. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I agree. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I think because it's featuring a new POV character, Mm. um, but it's still a later book. So you can kind of see what Terry's writing style is actually like for, you know, over half of the series. But it's starting, air quotes here, fresh. (laughs) Um, Except. (laughs) Yeah. It's an encore pork. Yeah. 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 It's in post Fifth Elephant on Ankhmor Park specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot of references to all sorts of stuff that's been 
happening. Aside from the stuff that happens with Vimes, there's also a whole bunch of stuff that's happening with the dwarves and and the uh, the cultural revolution that's happening within the dwarves. And we can we're, we're obviously going to touch on that uh, a little bit later. Um, I also know Taylor from uh, one of the best role-playing games in existence, uh, Descent into Midnight, of which he was uh, one of the tripartite design team and responsible for several of the most emotionally impactful game sessions I've ever had in my entire life. So, you know. I'm very flattered. Thank you for calling that out. I mean, Rich (laughs) Howard threw pens at me at one point. Yeah. And I will say that if you have noticed that my uh, usage of wrestling references has has increased over the last 10 episodes, that is also Taylor's (laughs) fault. (laughs) Real quick before we dive into the meat of the matter, I wish there had been a CMOT Dibbler um, wrestling promo book. Uh, (laughs) uh, Wow. That would have been been rancid and I love it. Anyway, Anna, do you want to quickly take us through the sketch of the plot? Yeah, sure. The Truth, as I've previously mentioned, is the first novel in a while, TM, to center on a new POV character, one William DeWord, the estranged son of one of the wealthy Ankh-Morpork social elite, uh, who's currently making his living uh, by providing a small letter containing news, or newsletter, if you will to political leaders in other cities. He runs into, or rather is run into by, a group of dwarfs and their printing press with movable type. After they swiftly replace the woodcut of his newsletter, which was damaged in the crash, William and the dwarfs quickly realize that they can scale up production on this letter enormously, and that people here in the city would also be willing to buy these papers containing news, or newspapers, if you will, and the Ankh Morpork Times is born. William quickly realizes his need for additional staff and is joined by engraver-turned-reporter Sacressa Kripsla and uh, vampire iconographer Otto Shriek. The former has plenty of ideas of how to diversify their subject matter and increase sales, and the latter has some innovative ideas on how to bring iconographs into print, namely Train the imps to etch plates with acid. William wants real content to report on, though, and the universe grants it. Vetinari is found having apparently stabbed his clerk and attempted to ride off with $70,000 from the city treasury. Vimes and DeWord both see that there's more to this than meets the eye. In fact, Vetinari has been framed by the criminal duo Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip alongside a kidnapped body double at the request of Mr. Slant, who's the head of the Guild of Lawyers, and on behalf of the anonymous Committee to Unelect the Patrician. However, that's for all of us to know, and William and Vimes to find out. Meanwhile, the Guild of Engravers is extremely displeased with the Times, and goes on the offensive, starting their own paper, a tabloid called the Ankhmore Pork Inquirer, trying to shake down DeWord for an enormous guild entry fee, and attempting to cut off their supply of paper. DeWord is undeterred, however, and continues his investigations, including offering a $25 reward for the return of Waffles, Vetinari's missing dog. This causes yet more chaos as the whole city descends upon the Times warehouse to try to collect the reward for their own dogs, cats, parrots, and assorted farm animals. 
Pin and Tulip also show up to try to intercept the dog, or at least any dog that plausibly resembles it, but are scared off by Otto, uh, who uses dark light from some spooky land deals. They escape in the ensuing chaos, and William tracks down the real Waffles, who has been sheltered by Foul Olron and Gaspode the Wonder Dog. Gaspode translates, and Waffles explains to William what really happened that night in the patrician's office. Sacrosa heads to the DeWord family house in search of a suitable dress to borrow for a ball, and encounters Pin, Tulip, and the captive veterinary double. Pin and Tulip capture her as well and bring her back to the Times warehouse. In the ensuing fight, the warehouse catches on fire. And while William and the rest of the Times staff flee to safety outside, the criminals head to the basement, which seems safe. At least until the lead from the press melts and begins to flow downward. Pin kills Tulip and uses his body as a raft, but is killed by DeWord as he exits the basement. On Pin's body, William not only finds enough gems to solve all the time's money problems, but a disorganizer that Pin and Tulip were using to blackmail Slant. After listening to the blackmail material, he realizes who is at the head of the whole plot, and heads to the family mansion to confront his father, where he is once again narrowly saved by Otto. In the aftermath, DeWord Sr. flees the city, Vetinari returns to his post as the patrician, and everything returns to normal. Except that the Times is here to stay, and that's a book. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I completely glazed over there. There's a lot to this book. Mm-hmm. So I did check this because I wanted to make sure, like, I wasn't just speaking offhand here. Just because you mentioned this is the first novel uh, in a while to feature a new point of view character, and the last one we had that had a new point of view character was Masquerade. Mm. Yeah. So it's been eight books. Mm-hmm. And Masquerade has a new POV character for, like, half of it, too. Yeah, whereas this is, like, the switch to another perspective, you know, aside from seeing that the antagonist is, is pretty rare in, in this book. It's really a DeWord-focused novel. Funny story. Uh, this is, I'm going to dip way down to the bottom of our document and pull <laughs> this out because it's really important to know uh, and also contextualizes a lot of Terry's, like, I'm smarter than everybody uh, writing. William DeWord is actually a portmanteau of Winkin DeWord and William Caxton, who are mutually credited with popularizing movable type printing in England in the 1500s. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. He pulls from a lot of like histor- actual historical stuff and throws it into Discworld just in his own brain blender. It's a good name, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially for someone who's involved in the press. Yeah. The DeWords. Uh, and I like the the little note that uh, the DeWords always had the right word in the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so that that's important to know. Uh, DeWord is technically nobility, uh, but he is living as a poor writer instead because he feels so distanced from his his uh, noble nobility and the, the family that he was raised in. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot there, you know, that his father is part of the extremely speciesist old guard of mm. the city and and William himself was sent off to a sounds like a extremely cruel and abusive boarding school yeah which i think would probably be very familiar in broad strokes to people of Terry Sir Terry's age in England at that point uh sort of post war um mm-hmm 
boarding schools for the rich. Was Terry from a wealthy family? I don't know. I guess I don't know too much about him. I don't believe so, no. But he did get his start as a journalist before he switched into writing. Okay. Uh, as, as science journalism specifically, interestingly. Mm. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why like a lot of the cosmology and stuff like that of Discworld actually kind of like works. Okay. <laughs> Asterisk. <laughs> for for a certain definition of <laughs> works yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into some funky stuck stuff next book, but that's that's for about oh. an hour and a half from now. <laughs> yeah, and then there's uh, Sakharissa, who is um, sort of the gal Friday to William DeVord. Yeah, and yeah. and she's kind of the the one who's more creative in a lot of ways. But also more grounded. Like, yeah. you know, no, we we put names in the paper because that's what sells. She, she's, she follows the dwarves, like... Faster than I think William does, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think my I think my like summary of like the times is that William DeWard sucks, but everyone around him is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's I think very accurate. Yeah, I think so. We'll talk about the new firm here in a little bit, but I I mm-hmm. think that William and Sacharissa play nice against those two uh, mm-hmm. because if we have like that sort of like four box quadrant of is a good person. <laughs> knows they're a good person is a bad person doesn't know that they're a bad person like mm-hmm. William I think is a quote unquote good guy who's actually kind of sucky Sakharissa rules like <laughs> ideologically and in practice she's tight as hell uh, and then like Mr. Tulip I think is a very sympathetic bad guy mm-hmm. but Mr. Pin is just like viciously evil mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we like looking at the, the pairing of those two, it's like if we, and again, I'm might be getting too far ahead into myself. Like, cause to me, the truth is all about like how, how we create narratives, what narratives stick and like, how do we justify what we think is the truth and looking at how each of those four characters look at like, what story are they trying to push uh, like how, what is the truth to them? I think William and Mr. Pin have a lot more in common than William and Sacharissa and Mr. Pin and Tulip and vice versa. Sacharissa and Tulip both have much more in common than, you know, their counterparts too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I love Sacharissa. Anytime that she was on the page, uh, I, I really vibed with, with what she was doing and what she was saying. Yeah. Um, not so much with Mr. DeWord, who I, I felt was maybe a uh, Henry David Thoreau, Ian, wow, I'm very rich and I'm living in the slums because it is something that is exciting for me to do. Yeah. Comparing the two of them, like William is, yeah, he's a rich guy who's decided I'm going to like, I'm going to throw off that safety net, mm. you know. And I'm going to do I'm basically like I'm going to be a spy for hire. That's what he is at the start of the book is that like he's just like he's collecting intelligence and mailing it out for like cheap to like Mm -hmm. 30 different dudes. (laughs) And he's just like, I'm going to live. I'm going to live in like it's he's he's what he's doing is he's doing poverty tourism. Yeah. And he's not even doing poverty tourism. He's doing middle class tourism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Twenty five dollars a week in like Moore Park is is fine. His his lodging house is mm-hmm. you know is is very kind of middle class single gentleman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Sakharissa is 
Like she's the daughter of an engraver. And like granted, it's like from what it sounds like, he's a pretty well off engraver. Mm-hmm. But like she is somebody who f- firmly like knows how people work and knows like how to get shit done. Mm-hmm. I think she has a better sense of right and wrong as well. Mm-hmm. And like we'll get into it here. Uh, I, I have some frustrations with this book. And I, I wish that the point of view character was from Sakharissa, uh, including <laughs> how the story goes at the end, um, compared to uh, the POV from uh, from William and how, how the book ends uh, hmm. there. So, uh, but, but staying with the times for, for a minute, uh, we also have Otto, the logical extension of what I discussed last episode, which is... Uh, in in this world, Terry first started with Hammer Horror in uh, Coffee Jugulum, and then immediately was like, "Wait, no, werewolves are jock pr- jock prep, and vampires are goth nerds." <laughs> Otto is perfect, and I love him. <laughs> I do love Otto. die for Otto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, it's interesting the way that he decided that blood he was going to treat blood as an addiction. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Otto, the photographer, the iconographer, excuse me, the iconographer who just wants to perfect his art. Even if he, you know, even if it hurts him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor buddy. Because you know, every time he uses that flash, she like goes arg, 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 and crumbles into dust. <laughs> yeah, I, there, there are certain bits that like Terry will do it once or twice and I'm like, okay, it's. No, it's funny every time. <laughs> every <Yes>. single time. Because <laughs> it's just like, you know it's happening. Like, he knows it's happening. He's prepared for it, and he's still... <gasps> and it, it works because he's such an earnest character. Like, he's mm-hmm. so excited and happy to be around these people and to do the things that he's doing. And mm-hmm. then just turns into a screaming ball of dust. <laughs> And this isn't a spoiler, but in in future books, like other vampires take up the same practice of having that emergency vial. Mm. That's good. It's clever. He's got a thick Ubervaldian accent. Yes. (laughs) Like, like, I I think it's like comparatively, whereas like the fifth elephant has like it's set at Uberwald and nobody's really got a thick accent there. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. Lady Margolotta has like a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Igors have their their Igor accent, right? Yeah, that's. But it's like, okay, you're in Ogmore Pork now. Now you get an accent. <laughs> yeah, well, the, yeah, the little cameo of of the the new watch Igor was great. Oh yeah, let's let's hold off on talking about the dwarves because that's just sort of that's a whole thing that we we should go into deeper down. Haha. Um, <laughs> uh, but the watch also is very different here. Um, Taylor, you've only read Guards, Guards, right? Uh, I have also read Night's Watch. Oh, oh okay. Well, okay, that's farther <laughs> ahead than this. That yeah. was the Night's Watch was the first Discworld book that I read. Interesting. Oh, wow. That um, is that's like yeah. That's, wow, okay. that was a wild. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm essentially just reading Discworld based off of which ones I can pull off the bookshelf because my husband has like four or five of them. Mm-hmm. Um. And I'm just going by vibes on the back cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's fascinating. Um, but yeah, you know, the watch has pretty dramatically expanded and really started to professionalize as a policing force. In, yeah, they're, in this they're, 
Um, they've kind of moved from the, you know, scrappy, downtrodden underdogs that we saw in that we saw in Guards Guards and mm-hmm. that you would also be familiar with from Nightwatch. Mm-hmm. And they're they're much more of a like organized police force at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the specific thing that that really differentiates them is that there's it's not just carrot following the rules. Like everybody is following rules, whether mm-hmm. they're Vimes's rules or policing rules is, you know, a separate discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the little scene, the little uh, dialogue between DeWord and, and Angua where she just does the, you know, the cop trope of only answering his, his questions with questions, uh, was very, um, Socratic, um, but also very Vimes. Yeah, and they have a lot more social power at this point. That the elite would still be looking down on them as you know lower class, like any form of tradesman. Um, but they're, I think that your ordinary Ankhmore pork citizen would have a lot more to be concerned about with the watch at this point. Mm-hmm. If the watch, you know, wanted them for questioning, etc. The the question of why does Vibe see like a bit of a mean guy? Ooh, yeah, I, I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, um, so I mean, uh, we can go. Do you guys this. have a, a rating? Am I allowed to swear on this show? Go for it. All, the, all yeah. you fucking want. Okay. Oh, ing, oh, right? Uh, <laughs> He's I'll a just, ing dick. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two things. Um, what is that Vimes is like? He's settled now into a position of power. And the second is, is that this is the first book, like, in a while that we are seeing the City Watch portrayed from the viewpoint of non-Watch members. Mm. I'm not yep. sure that it's, like, I think they've only been sort of casually mentioned yeah. as non-perspective characters before. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah, I think, like, I think in one or two books we've seen, like, knobs and colon, mm-hmm. yeah. like, walking around. Or, the, like, like the, the opera at one point in, in Masquerade. But yeah. yeah, yeah, we've seen like individual watch people, mm-hmm. but this is the first time we're seeing Vimes outside of from somebody who's not Vimes, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating. Yeah, and this is one of honestly, this is one of my favorite parts of this book is that I think that it's a thing that is really wild for Terry to do because mm-hmm. at this point he has spent a lot of page time developing Vimes as a protagonist character who he obviously cares very deeply about and has a deep connection to. And then he turns around and writes the truth where Vimes is a fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. And we can t- we can talk about whether DeWord's perception of Vi- like, you know, Vimes's perception of Vimes versus the reader's perception of Vimes versus DeWord's perception of Vimes, etc. Because these yeah. are all different things. Yeah, I feel but- like I feel like, you know, there's an argument to be made that Vimes's reaction to DeWard is entirely internally consistent. Oh, absolutely. But it's it's so interesting to take this protagonist character and have a new POV character who then is like, you know what? That protagonist ca- character, I hate them. Mm-hmm. Or not, not quite hate, but, you know, mm-hmm. to have a new protagonist character who views the established protagonist as an antagonist is just a mm-hmm. wild move. Yeah. And, you know, I think that really it, it, you know, we're jumping around like crazy. It's okay. We'll, we'll catch everything. But, you know, I think that the, the critical thing here is that it's Terry himself starting to ask the question, who watches the watchman? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, because because as he develops this police force into an into a, a power in and of itself in 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 Ankh-Morpork, he's like, well, there needs to be a check to this power, and the the place that that goes is a free press. I think I would agree with that more if the book hadn't ended the way that it did. Oh, you mean with with carrot saving the day? No, with William deciding that he is gonna not print what really happened, but instead opt to publish a narrative that rescues his family name, reinstates the patrician as leader of Ankh-Morpork, and glorifies the watch, uh, and essentially places the glory for resolving and saving the day on their shoulders. Yeah. I. I and this this gets to my frustrations with the book. Like on a craft level, I enjoyed reading it. I thought the jokes were funny. I thought the characters were interesting. Ideologically, I was not a fan of this book, um, because of the ending and because of what the 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 sort of clash between what the ending says about all of the themes in the book uh, and what I feel like was set up in the start. Because, like, I, I definitely agree. In the the start, maybe, like, the first third of the book, like, I was really on, on board. I was excited. I was like, yes, cool. This is a book about the value of information, uh, the advent of, uh, of uh, you know, information flow as, like, a concept. Like, the democratization of, uh, of public narratives. Um, and then it, it kind of, like, all wraps up with, uh, I think maybe like a hastily scrubbed together uh noir slash newsroom drama mm. um and it didn't sit right with me uh based on my expectations from the beginning of the book um mm-hmm. but yeah I, I, part I don't know. of that I think part of that is because Deward is kind of a piece of shit a little yeah. bit yeah I think I think like he's a muckraker I, I think that it's the that the idea of it is that like you have this character who like i think that the ending is because of a moral failing of william and like i think like well you know like towards the end of the book like multiple people say you're not going to follow through on this or you're not going to name names and then he doesn't (laughs) yeah and, and, and like they call him out on it and i think it's like i think it's bad that it's like he that like nobody calls him on that or he doesn't face retribution for it. I do think like what he does is, is consistent with what he shows in the book. I don't know. I, cause I mean, Sakharissa calls on him, calls him on it in the end. And like, even at the, the end where like the, the council and the watch are like setting up to being like, okay, we're going to let you continue doing your press because you, you helped us in this situation. Um, Like Lord Downey says, Right out loud, supposing you write down something we don't want him to write down with the knowledge that that is the threat. Like he knows he yeah. has the ability to do that. Um, Lord Downey's just like saying that right there. And that is mirrored with uh, a situation in the start of the book where the bursar uh, is is worried about the the concept of the printing press where he says the very concept of letters having their own physical existence is philosophically extremely worrying william at the beginning and uh, granted goaded on by good mountain um says like 
you know, you know, we're we're gonna do this. We're gonna stick by our guns and and publish the truth and and all of these things. And then at the end, he's alongside this this council of merchants, uh, uh, allied with the police. Um, it it almost feels like the opposite of character growth, where he's sliding back into the privilege that he left uh, to go start his newsletter originally. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's why I said like I I would have really appreciated if Sakarissa was the one who mm-hmm. kind of closed everything out because I I don't believe the way that she's written that that she would have kind of reinstated status quo. I I feel like Sakarissa yeah. would have been someone to more push uh with the free press and and push with uh the times against uh some of these these misnarratives. I won't call them lies because the book has a lot to say about what is truth and what is lie. But this misnarrative uh, that the, the Watch and the Council wants uh, and, and gets William to perpetuate. I feel like if you have Sakharissa there as a lead character, or even as the point of view, I you would have a very, like, and wanted to, like, portray that. You could have a very good, like, through line of that being, like, just, mm. you know, it's a very classic noir storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things with William throughout all this that ties into, and I've never felt in in all the times I reread this book, I've never felt at the end like we were supposed to feel good about the ending. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like the purpose of the ending was to feel bad about the ending. Mm. And, you know, because... Sometimes, sometimes we move forward and sometimes we move back. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, I, I think one of the things that stands out to me about William throughout all this, um, in addition to some of the some of the privilege start stuff that I'll point out as buttons, but um, he doesn't even know what he wants or why he's doing this. Mm-hmm. He is like kind of a yeah. The press oh man, literally drops into his lap. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Harry King honestly summarizes it the best of, you know, the boy's a born muckraker. It's mm-hmm. a shame that he wasn't, you know, that he was born so far away from honest muck. Mm. Right. You know, at various points, people ask William, what do you want from this? And he's mm-hmm. like, I don't fucking know. I'm just doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how we end up with the ending is that he is fundamentally a deeply unintrospective character. And it's you know, mm-hmm. and there's a reason why we don't get any other books with him as a POV POV character too. Yeah, we do get a fair amount of Sakharissa in future books, though. Nice. Yeah. Looking forward to that. <laughs> Something that this just popped up while that I was thinking of just to build off what Anna was saying is he is almost like an ex- he is almost like a polar opposite of Vimes um, because yeah. he instead of like Vimes, who is I they they both are like they are both scions of noble lines but vibes is somebody who is very much comes from a poor background and has been lifted up there uh through his achievements we'll say just to really like condense that but through his achievements and what he has done in the walk and that's partly due to him being a deeply introspective character yeah Mm -hmm. and william meanwhile is somebody who has chosen to like socially de-escalate himself and do this project. And the the thing is, is that like, it could have very easily been that William was a non-cop Vimes, 
But there's a problem is that William is too comfortable. He's not angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Whereas Vimes is a, like, you know, he is described multiple times in this book as a vicious, angry human. And not only that, but knowing that he is. And though, so he binds himself with the rules that he's written to keep himself constrained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 Vimes the word conflict, like the the thing that really strikes me, like looking from Vimes's perspective. Uh, first of all, we know that Vimes does not like nobles. Uh, from multiple books, he hates nobles, and he knows that Deward is a noble. You know, regardless of his his <laughs> middle class tourism, um, he, he knows from experience that the wrong information does more damage than no information, which is why he's just trying to put a lid on things. Uh, and also, like there there is no free press in. Uh, Ankh-Morpork at Morpork at the point at the point where you know some of the conflicts start. So like he has no, you know, the only thing he's thinking is this is going to get the word killed, and I can't. I'm trying to minimize the bodies that drop today. Um, nothing, you know, nothing that he's done so far has put him in the helping Vimes category. So you know, yeah. and he's very clearly very good at talking his way past multiple members of the watch. Yeah. So he's in the trouble bin. And he's and he's also clearly not not opposed to blackmailing the watch mm-hmm. with Nobby Nobbs's deep secret. <laughs> Actually, Taylor, had you met Angua at this point? I had not. Okay, so that was a, a fun experience. Mm-hmm. Something that this book also feels like, just from like a like a craft perspective, is that this book it feels in a sense that it's trying to. It's trying to, like, it's got the one thing that's changed with the introduction of the press here. But the end of the book does feel like it's putting all the toys back in the box. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it, I actually, I really agree with you. That was something I was thinking about earlier. You know, the, the, the hardbacks have these descriptions of like different arcs and the, 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 the truth is considered part of the industrial revolution sort of arc. I really think it's not. I think it's an Ankh-Morpork book. Mm-hmm. You know, because it has all of these different players, and sure, there's a little bit of technology, but like we focus almost as much on the watch as we do on Vetinari, as we do on DeWord, as we do on the guilds. Like it's it's an Ankh-Morpork book. He's he's like he changed a whole bunch of stuff in Fifth Elephant, and then he's like, "Crap, I need to figure out what happens." You know, it's it's a world building session. I, I think Anna described it that way uh, in in some of our chats beforehand yeah i mean like awkward park is like my by far my favorite part of the disc and like everything like just everything we get about awkward park there i just i love it because it's just it is the worst city and i love it i i did want to touch back on the uh the undesirables the the canal gang as somebody described them who we have the beggars even the beggars look down on them which you know makes them an ace i guess I think we last saw them fully in Hogfather. Is that right? Sounds about right. Yeah, but they they're they they become a staple of mm-hmm. you know they they cameo in everything Ankhmore Pork. Yeah, I love them so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just like a stickler for like dirty, smelly, horrible goblin men who just live by the river and eat trash. The scene where they serve William tea and it's just like so horrible. <laughs> and of course they have lemons. They've got lemons that they fished out of the river. I, I love that sequence too because William's like, 
okay, I'll give it a shot, takes a sip. Oh, this isn't so bad. And then they say, yeah, we fished the lemons out of the river. And he's just like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to die. Because, you know, it's, it's established the Inkmore Pork River is not so much a river as just a slurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If you found water in uh, the river, Ankh, you, you would be surprised. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I love the fact that Gaspode is now part of that gang uh, pretty firmly. Yeah. It, it's a good, like, that, that's where he, sh- like, that's where I think he vibes. Mm-hmm. And they've got the, there's a new one this time, I think, with the, the plural character. Yeah. The altogether um, Andrews. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting take on dissociative personality disorder. Is that yeah, it's the right term for it now? I think I think it you know, I think it tends to be described as plural systems. Hmm. Um in the sense that I think not everybody who is a plural system um feels that they have a disorder. Mm-hmm. So I thought yeah. I thought that this, you know, and this is again something that I am very far from having any expertise on um i felt pretty good about altogether andrews yeah it's they they are at least loved and appreciated by their cohort yeah do we want to talk about um our our (laughs) duo (laughs) yes the new firm so i love them so much i think i'm gonna like them better on a reread because i think like my problem with them was that i could not differentiate them for like the first half of the book Mm. Hmm. Mm, yeah yeah, I, but they are very interesting. There's something about like tiny, concentrated evil man and his large, dumb, just f- fucking ugly as hell boyfriend. It's such a good trope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I love the take on it in this one where Tulip is the like art connoisseur. Yeah, and he's like going and like you know this piece is in fantastic. Look at that. In craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just weirdly knows everything about fine art. Right. Uh, but also is in- inhaling every single chemical known to man, dwarf, <laughs> troll, etc. I love him. <laughs> Mr. T- I, as much as I love S- Sakurissa, I think Mr. Tulip was my favorite character in this whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. The, the simple conviction that if he had his potato, he would be mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's reminiscent to the, actually the, the dynamic is kind of reminiscent to the, the one that we saw in Hogfather too, with um, yeah, Mr. Tea time and the, the goon that he pulls. Remember the, the large oh, yeah. Idiot boy. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember his name. Uh, yeah. um, but then also I pulled off of L space, a long diatribe that I'm not going to go fully into here because there's been a lot of comparisons uh, between uh, Tulip and Pin and Vandemar and Croup from Neverwhere or uh, Jules and Vincent from Pulp Fiction, um, you know, or... or Especially Croup and Vandemar. Yeah. I can definitely see where people... I mean, I think it's... you know, As Terry says, I think it's because they're drawing on the same well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very well-trodden trope that signals a lot of things so that, that the author can then get onto more you know, important yeah. stuff. Like, I think what, I think they bounce between, uh, a, like what, like uh, those various references, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, I think they're at their worst when they're the, the diamonds are forever, uh, parody there. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it, it gets more fun once it becomes Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of them does, in fact, have a, a wallet that says something along the lines of not a very nice person or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And they have a Royale with cheese moment. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Terry Terry says that, you know, fiction and movies are full of pairs of bad guys that pretty much equate to Pin and Tulip. Um, you know, they go back a long way. That's why I use them and probably what O'Neill did, too. Um, with two guys, one can always explain the plot to the other. Yeah, the the thing that like strikes me as being Krupen Vandemar and why why it, like that always pings in my brain is mm-hmm. that there's two kind of traits of Krupen Vandemar that both are in Tulip. Mm-hmm. The like insatiable appetite for something in mm-hmm. this case mysterious substances purchased illicitly <laughs> that actually turn out to be baking powder and the art appreciation. Mm. And then also the capability of ca- for casual violence. Yeah, that they're... Well, I think the capability for casual violence is more part of the trope overall. But mm-hmm. the... But I think that those two very specific things are what link it to Krupp and Vandermeer in my head. Even though both those things are extremely different in Pin and Tulip, or specifically in Tulip. Yeah, Tulip is definitely played by Vinnie Jones. <laughs> I, I love Pin and Tulip because uh, of a piece of this book that I wish we had seen more of, the black light and the, the haunting of your past. Uh, and I think it's it's very enjoyable that Mr. Pin uh, is haunted by both of their misdeeds, <laughs> where Mr. Tulip is not haunted whatsoever by the black light. In, in, instead, he starts to get like those memories that come back of his childhood. Mm-hmm. It, it feels very much like a situation of like your circumstances leading you down this this dark life are a piece of violence to you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Mr. Pin is like the pure like these are the evil deeds that I am committing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that I was very satisfied with in terms of the story. I wish we had seen so much more of that. So I think that's that's a, a real gem. <laughs> And the the encounters with death for both of them are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love I love my I love my buddy Death of Rats getting a moment. <laughs> so an hour in, um, should we talk about some broad impressions? Let's do it. <laughs> uh, we can we can we can we can zoom back out just a little bit here. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I don't think we've we've specifically yeah. talked about you know some of the the way it relates to where we are in in the you know. Mm-hmm. Because the yeah. three of us are are doing this this long read of like chronological publication order, so mm-hmm. you know seeing where it sits in Terry's thinking at the time, I think gets you a very different. You know, I'm not saying I, I'm I'm very actually interested in you know the perspective that that you bring to the table tonight, Taylor, because mm-hmm. like you know this is and with 41 books, there's like unless you're an idiot like me, uh, there's no way to to really like situate yourself, you know, safely. Mm-hmm. And particularly since the truth is recommended by by some as a place to start, which is probably not a good place to start. I but, don't think it is. Mm-mm. Yeah, <laughs> like this is my overall impression of it. It is a book that. In 2000, was probably a lot better than it was in 2021. Mm-hmm. The last 21 years have been. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I, this like book I, I have very well. I like, yeah. It, it's unfortunately, it's. I don't want to be. I don't like. This is unfortunately 
the entire over the last two decades, the entire landscape of news media has mm-hmm. been so irreparably murdered and like systematically destroyed that this that this version of news mm-hmm. does not exist anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you would throw if you'd show this to a random person and did not say this was written in 2000, like 2000, and like you presented this as a new book, like depending on who you ask, like it would probably like get dismissed as like how like like it would get derided as like the way that like some people say like how the West Wing views politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, like what a more cynical crowd looks at the West Wing. That's a that's a good poll, and then also like the. 20 year difference from 25 year difference from uh, Bernstein and Woodward to 2000 versus the changes that happened in media from 2000 to now, you know, the, the difference is staggering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of um, Watergate references in this book. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Which by the way, the best joke in this book might be deep bone. Deep bone is very good (laughs) because it's just the funniest thing to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every time I hit that, I, I laugh literally out loud. And Tulip and Pin enter the city through the water gate. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And there's uh, the committee to unelect the patrician. Yeah. And, you know, the, the secret recording. Uh, sorry, I derailed this yet again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, like, overall, it's a fun book, but um, its message has just unfortunately 20 years of. I loved, we've discussed this in Bab Pod of how just anything you take from like pre-2001 about media and the news is just, it is like looking into an entirely different universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this is definitely one where people 10 years younger than our amalgamated age um, are probably going to find it even more difficult to get this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think a, a similar, and again, I haven't read many Discworld books, a book that tries to do something similar and I think does better is Weird Sisters with the the play. That, I don't know if you guys have covered Weird Sisters or not. Oh, so. yeah. Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Um, the the way that Weird Sisters uh, deals with like responsibility and the importance of story um, and community, I, I, I think that one stuck the landing. Uh, in a way that I don't think the truth did. And I, I, I ultimately felt more comfortable with Weird Sisters than I did with the truth because I think it kind of aligned with what I was expecting from like a, a story about the power of the word, you know? Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that they threw the wizards in right at the beginning and then really didn't follow that with the caveat that we, we, I think as a podcast have agreed that the wizards are always best in the B plot. Um, yeah. you know, that their, their concern over removable type is, you know, in, in this world books can actually come, you know, alive. Mm. And the, the, the idea that you could print a magic book with movable type and it would retain the magic mm-hmm. and infect subsequent printings is like that's that's a real fear mm-hmm. like i you know but also quite possibly draw drawn from you know the early printing press era of how are we actually reproducing you know the bible for example yeah yeah it's it's the idea of if we use this printing press to print the bible does the, like you know 
can we print other things on it? Because, you know, right. this was, this was, I, I will say that these are arguments that were largely used to stifle the movable type printing press from continuing production rather than actual legitimate theological concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and at least one previous book has established that movable type is not actually anything new that movable type has been, has existed on the disc for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, In other cultures. But the wizards have banned it. Yeah. When apparently, apparently once Ridcully is in power, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. We are also off to the races with the clacks. Uh, You know, the fifth elephant really set it up, but now it's, it's, it's go time on those. And like the, I think the meta, plot of of veterinary increasingly seeing information as currency um i i think that probably is also where terry is is coming from with with setting up the the press it's it's kind of bonkers to look at how fast the disc ink more pork in particular but the disc overall is changing at this point like that you know we've got the changes in the watch we uh moving toward modern policing versus kind of a group of thugs of varying moral character mm-hmm. the we've got the clacks and now we've got newspapers mm-hmm. now we've got the fourth estate right and you can send newspapers over the clacks if you have enough money uh I, I think it's fun also i enjoyed the departure from our standard rotation of pov characters that you know even in masquerade you know a, a solid like half of that was with nanny and granny as pov characters mm. and so having something that's really solidly somebody new even if that somebody new is a piece of shit <laughs> yeah it's a fun departure because it, it and what it lets you do is it lets you or it lets terry like pull back on the lens and like reintroduce a character and like show how other people are going to perceive that person mm-hmm. whereas compared to like Vimes, who is, um, let's say, a very biased observer, <laughs> uh, um, you know, it, it's will get you know you get somebody else who is a very biased observer, but biased in very different ways, mm-hmm. which is it's interesting. It's it's a nice fun pull, especially in Ankhmore Park, where it's like we recognize all of these folks. Uh, do we want to cover themes at all? We've sort of been doing that, but we okay. should. <laughs> but I mean, like, I, if we've we got have, anything that we want to call out, yeah, there's one thing that I would like to call out more in the. Um, I'd I'd like to move my positive and negative, like the role of media and society, to both the age well and didn't age well, mm. because there's part of there's parts of that that I think did age well, but we can cover that mm-hmm. down yeah. below. I mean, Terry Terry was very online uh, from a very <laughs> early. Well, and he and Douglas Adams were friends. Um, Douglas Adams is like one of, one of, if not my favorite author. Um, and I know that they've collaborated on projects before, like Starship Atlantis. Um, and knowing that this book was written in 2000, or at least published in 2000, it's like right at the heyday of the dot-com kind of era. And I can see like, yeah, if there's a lot of similarities to like the printing press history and, uh, you know, the the role of of newspapers but also like the way that the internet started to like scare people in the early 2000s and saying you know it's giving the power to spread information 
to anyone. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot that I see there of, of the, like, well, it's, it's written in the paper, so it's gotta be true of mm-hmm. kind of similar things to my being online as a kid of like, you know, anyone can go on and. Hey, T- Taylor, you know? Taylor, are you telling me that everything I read on Twitter isn't true? It's a hundred percent true. If, otherwise, why would they print it? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know that the only way to get a Mew is underneath that truck uh, near the SSN, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's like the earliest thing that I remember like reading on the internet that was just wholeheartedly somebody made it up. That's like, that's the earliest thing I remember. It's just like... And like oh, it's Pokemon. A, yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a double-sided <laughs> coin though, too, cuz like it the the advent of the internet, the the low barrier of entry to go and and create something there means that we no longer uh are are or at least the the power structures that hold the narrative have to work a lot harder to control that. I think that's something that I I again wish that uh, had developed more in this book to say, like, you know, if we have the ability to make a news for the people or I, I do like at the end where uh, I think William's talking about, like, uh, you know, there's there's the public interest news, which the public <laughs> is not interested in. There's the olds, which, again, the public is not interested in and the news, which is not true, but the public is interested in. Yeah. Yeah. That that to me felt very dot commy. Something that I'm like wanting that that I'm just like wanting to see but also like I get that this is introducing the concept and you know we might see this in another book is what other people do with with the press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like not even necessarily newspapers but like you know stuff like leaflets mm-hmm. and uh magazines. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just like, what is what is that used when it's given to other other people? Mm-hmm. And and that, that's you know, the thing that like, Sakarissa is seeing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that Anna, she's pin fancier monthly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but like Sakarissa is looking at all of, and, and she's the one who's looking ahead and being like, you got like magazines, you've got leaflets, you've got like. Magazines for people who love cats, magazines for people who love dogs, magazines for people who love both cats and dogs. You know, these are all niches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she, see, she sees that. And that's one of the things that I love about her is that she's got this, like, she's far more forward thinking than William. Which mm-hmm. honestly mm-hmm. reflects, actually, you know, even more closely the these, you know, the first six years or so of the popularization of the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, these communities of interest that that were able to arise at a distance mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and then also of course the tastemakers within them which then directed the communities uh, <laughs> i mean like even stuff like for example i mean um to do a little bit of crossover with our other podcast early yeah. usenet mm-hmm. yep um which where, terry was on a lot yeah and like and and i mean we'll, we'll go into this but like there there was a like you know, the people who control, like, you know, who, who lead discussion in those forums. There is a whole, like, drama thing in, like, the mid-90s over the Babylon 5 Usenet. <laughs> um, that there were, in fact, two of them. Um, and, like, it, it's a whole other thing. There's a, a hobby drama subreddit 
uh, post about oh, it. Oh yeah, that was great uh, reading. Uh, yeah, and it's just like, and it's just like how this rapid democratization of the internet of just like everything you read of that is like this is a twi- this is just a Twitter beef twenty five <laughs> years early. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that the the speed of development in Ankh-Morpork really is very reminiscent of that early dot-com era where things changed so fast. And I mean, are, are still changing so fast, but, you know, moving from Usenet to internet to et cetera, um, was really, really a very rapid transformation of society. Um, should we jump over to other themes that we want to touch on before we all die of exhaustion? You know, I, I feel like we've discussed mine already. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, Anna, you, you mentioned about like the social acceptability of conservative, like, you know, high class conservative racism. And I just, that'd be nice to touch on, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, has caused William to be estranged from his family is that, you know, his father is very explicitly very racist, um, you know, against dwarfs against pretty much everybody as far as i can tell from from what william insinuates is basically like it seems like ba- basically at this point ekmore pork everybody in the social elite with the exception of lady sybil <laughs> feels that way mm-hmm. um that's still very much the established established thing and it's very still very socially acceptable that DeWord Sr. is not being ostracized for his beliefs or anything like that. But you know, in fact it's all it's people who feel that way who are, you know, trying to take Vetinari out of power and put somebody who feels the same way mm-hmm. on the throne or not throne as it were. I do want to touch on Mr. Scrope at some point, but uh yeah. especially his 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 novelty shop uh, but but the yeah I I think that you know that it's sort of it is the common immigrant story here where the established elite see change especially coming from outside of your sort of domain and reacting to it both with actual violence but then also you know the the various levers that they have available to them via their privilege. Yeah, and it's something that we still see now today in the real world a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, dwarves are are simultaneously, you know, uh, dirty uh, underground dwellers and also dangerously productive, and will work, you know, twenty four hours at a moment's notice. Uh, you know, it sounds <laughs> familiar. Uh, I think the rest of my stuff here has been covered. Mm. Uh, what's a button you want to pull? Um, I mean, we'll, we'll, we can go on the... I, I, I can build off of this. There's one that I have marked, which is... Uh, or Mr. Penn says, Right, I remember, you were concerned citizens. And he knew about concerned citizens. Wherever they were, they all spoke the same private language, where traditional values meant hang someone. <laughs> yep. And I, it's just... It, it is, you know, shit-stirring of rich people it's the the whole thing of rich people using in this case the inquirer and and stuff like mr wildling who is a bit character in this books just like casual 
assumptions of racism to push their agenda and remake society as they want it to best suit them of course mm-hmm. yeah you know that, that's that's echoed in the uh a discussion inside the watch uh where you know they're talking about mr scope is saying apparently he wa- he says he's looking forward to a new era in our history and will put Ankh morpork back on the path of responsible citizenship apparently he wants to return to the values and traditions that make the city great and then Vime says does he know what those values and traditions were yeah the the one small one that i wanted to pull is that that terry points out that privilege literally means private law Mm -hmm. i've got a couple taylor do you want to go first yeah my mine's long so i'll uh i'll just do my my spiel as i wrote it down in the document um that my my button moment was early in the book it was page 31 uh i think i already quoted it indeed the very concept of letters having their own physical existence is philosophically extremely worrying uh and i wonder if that didn't color my experience with the rest of the book uh because with this quote we get a very opinionated read on the anxiety of those in power to control the narrative um So when the bursar says just a couple paragraphs down, uh, supposing the metal remembers the words that it has printed, uh, which is, uh, you know, to me read like a fear of losing the ability to maneuver around your narrative and like change it as it, it it sees fit. If the, the news is printed physically, then that's the, the truth. Um, as, as Williams breakfast group keeps saying, you know, if it's in the paper, it's gotta be true. Otherwise they wouldn't print it. Um, although ironically, they're often saying that about the news that's in the inquirer. Um, and I know that it serves as like the big gotcha moment at the end, but when we keep hearing a lie can get around the world before the truth can put its boots on, we can see right there why the bursar is afraid of the permanency of the press. Um, it's repeated so often that idiom, the lie can get around the world before the truth can put its boots on. Um, but even though it's repeated so often, we in reading it can see that it's not, not a hundred percent true. Um, that it's, it's either a lie or it itself is leaving out a lot of information because, you know, sure the lie gets to where it's going first as, you know, with the news of veterinary's guilt. Uh, but what sticks around and becomes permanent isn't the lie that, that gets changed. It's not even the truth because William massages that and creates this kind of new narrative that, uh, uh, kind of reinstates the status quo. Um, but the thing that, the thing that, um, sticks around is the, ch- the story that's chosen to be permanent. So when, when the bursar is saying, you know, these letters that will stick around and be permanent, the, the, the metal remembering the story, uh, is something that, that to me felt like a very, uh, deep anxiety of, of power, um, when it can't control, uh, the story. Yeah. And that that's really interesting and you know it's you know that's where I think it's really interesting having somebody who's new fairly new to the series reading this one in particular because mm. that's a that's a quote that like didn't didn't ping me at all but I think that I I I think that you're definitely you know onto something mm-hmm. there um that I think that it's something I think that it's something where maybe there was an intent for a deeper introspection there. Um, 
but it's easy to brush it off as like, oh yeah, well, like you know, it's a magic thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what we've seen um, with a lot of the wizards, and you know, that um, I think it's really interesting to think about how you know there in in the disc there might be both the philosophical concerns that mm-hmm. you point out, as well as literal concerns yeah because like i had no clue about like the fact that there are actual books with moving type but yeah that was something where like you pointed out and i was like wow i had never thought of that before Mm -hmm. something something that like builds off that i think is there is the last line of the book actually um where it's nothing has to be true forever just long enough to tell you the truth Mm. which is just like i i and like there, there's some other things about like just how like fleeting the news is. Mm-hmm. Like when they visit Harry King, uh, Harry dismisses the newspaper as bin six, low quality paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, which which is you know, it's it's all these things of like that. You know, the news is only there for a day, mm-hmm. and it only has to be true for that day. Mm-hmm. And and then there's Vetinari's concern of um, you know. Why is there the same amount of news every day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if it fits into four pages or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, just a couple sentences up from that, William remembers that he needs a double column story for page two. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, looking at you, BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and I, I had a few. Um you know, one of them is one of the one of the things that William said or you know, thought that I really liked. William wondered why he always disliked people who said no offense meant. Maybe it was because they found it easier to say no offense meant than to actually refrain from giving offense, which I thought was a really good quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the end, we've got pulling together is the aim of despotism and tyranny. Free mm-hmm. men pull in all kinds of directions. It's the only way to make progress coming from Benari, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, which really is emblematic of the way he is setting up the city. Like, making the guilds all pull against each other. It's setting up a balance of power where where he doesn't actually have to do much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, I also just really liked a lot of William's interactions with Otto and Sakharissa in particular. Mm-hmm. Um so we've got you know Otto being like yes, and I notice how careful you are to be friendly with the dwarfs, and you are kind to me. Also, it is a big effort, which is very commendable. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's kind of got this note of like it's really drawing the uh, the line of like that William is not somebody it, that he's, he's suggesting perhaps- is performative. Yeah, almost. yeah, exactly. Um, that's that's good phrasing. That's exactly what I was thinking. That like. It's hard to tell what William thinks in the depths of his brain because he has been, you know, he has been exposed to a lot of bigoted thinking. And, um, you know, part of that is it seems like he is trying to deprogram himself, which is good. But, um, but there's also this performative aspect of like he's very careful to make sure to be to be a good boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then also, you know, him, you know, assuring to Sakharissa, you know, I don't have money. I make my own living. And she's like, yeah, but you were able to choose. And also, is anybody really going to let you starve? Mm-hmm. Having those two characters kind of 
act as a narrative foil to William and like pointing out that what he really he really is doing just middle class tourism. Um, and I really appreciated that the book was making that clear to the reader. Can we talk about dwarves? Yeah, let's talk about the dwarves. Uh, this is like book three, four. I guess I'd I'd put it, pin it at book four, really, of of the the arc of the revolution in dwarven culture broadly, mm-hmm. but specifically sexual expression, gender expression, yeah. I guess. And I mean, we also get to see like dwarves sort of operate like as a unit, as a group business, and like because I mean the the newspaper is there mostly as a way for I, 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 like the the whatever cooperative the, the dwarves have in this book of like really all they care like they, they don't care about the news really they care about the printing press mm-hmm. and they care about um, making money right they're turning lead yeah. into gold exactly and there is a like a programmer's and engineer's view of this which is very fun of just like that they, they, these are our, it's a it's basically like you know the, the dwarves are in possibly like the most like wholesome way that they are a bunch of engineers figuring out a they they have figured out a product and they are retooling it on the fly constantly to adapt it and it's very fun to see throughout the book of like how the printing press changes to suit the needs of what it, of what they have mm-hmm. And like how they figure out stuff of like, like how they sort the the type blocks and like oh yeah we figured out that we need more M's than like O's mm-hmm. and stuff like that is very it's it's just like it's yeah it's a lot of fun because it's like it's this little looks to like yeah no Terry no, like Terry has thought about this a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and the dwarves are his way of showing like yes I think about this a lot yeah. And the way that they're constantly tearing down and rebuilding the the press and making it better and stuff. Um, the other thing I really wanted to pull out was the this whole concept of the the free unencumbered new dwarfs, uh, which I think is is like the most concentrated info dump of dwarven society that we've seen like outside of fifth elephant at this point, which is this idea that when two dwarfs are, are getting married, uh, they basically pay the family. It's like, it's like a mutual dowry to both sides. Um, and it's not like, it's not buying it so much as reimbursing, uh, because this, the idea is that they need to start their new lives together um, out of love and respect, not as debtor and creditor. It's really interesting. Was a really mm-hmm. cool, like world building concept. Mm-hmm. It's like a um, self dowry type right. of thing. Right. The, he he does note that he does note later on that you know both families may in fact give you know a substantial amount of of money as a wedding gift that may in fact exceed the the like. Um, you know, bridal price that each of them have paid to the other. And it was, it's also fascinating that it can it can even work like the other way, that if a dwarf has been working for his parents for a substantial amount of time, um, 
and you know is a skilled craftsman then Mm -hmm. that dwarf may in fact be owed money for the dowry yeah in the in the kind of balancing of the ledgers uh but then also you know we only see cherry for 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 a a brief moment i think in veterinary's office but the footnote i thought you know in our ongoing quest to prove the turfs wrong about sir terry um uh, there's a footnote. Uh, most dwarfs were still referred to as he as well, even when they were getting married. It was generally assumed that somewhere under all that chain mail, one of them was female, and but both of them knew which one this was. But the whole subject of sex was one, one that traditionally minded dwarves did not discuss, perhaps out of modesty, possibly because it didn't interest them very much, and certainly because they took the view that what two dwarfs decided to do together was entirely of their own business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, you know, far along in this particular thread of plots. I love the dwarves. <laughs> they're very good. They're 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 quickly becoming one of my favorite parts of the desk. Yeah, and they 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 hack into the Inquirer. Yes. <laughs> oh God, yes. Uh, was there any, sorry? I I sort of dominated the conversation, Justin. Was there anything in particular you wanted to talk about? Um, I'm trying to. <laughs> Which part of this are we on still? Jesus, I don't know. <laughs> I think we're um, theoretically on broadly what did you like about the book, but I think or, or possibly also yeah. favorite details. Yeah. Somewhere um, somewhere in that like zone. Yeah. So I'm just gonna say like one of my favorite bits in this in this in this book is when Veterinary first gets wind of the printing press, he comes to visit. And he, and his, he's got two questions. First, is Cutman Dibbler involved in any way with this? Yeah, it's like nope. He's like excellent. Is this on? A, is this is the is this on a graveyard? Nope. Is this on a ritual burial site? No. Is this on any sort of universal temporal disturbance? Nope. Is the tight made out of like haunted metal? Nope. Okay, we're good. We're good. Is this going to <laughs> because- form a rift in space time? because he, he's just like i just need to cover my ass here this must stay <laughs> it, it must stay the realms of the cult the canny and the scrutable was one of my favorite <laughs> little words it was so funny because i'm i'm just like thank you you like he's like i'm never letting like venadari lived through the first 24 books of discord and he's like I like us. He said, I am never fucking dealing with the dungeon dimensions again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, CMOT is definitely, um, veterinary's, uh, canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Gosh. And, and you know, and if we're going over things we love, it's just auto. Mm-hmm. Oh, just mm-hmm. everything auto. I love the introduction of Harry King. Well, wait, um, I wanted to keep going with Otto for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Because the, the recurring bit of Otto being frustrated when Thunder doesn't clap. Mm-hmm. At his, oh, at fuck his, yes. you know, And then when it finally does, and he's just like, yeah. And keeps and he keeps doing it. Yeah. yeah. Just like, castle. <laughs> castle. <laughs> castle. I, I trust you will put the appropriate foley in there. Oh, I did the foley. <laughs> I think there, there's a there's a nice little bit. It's about a third of the way through the book um, with regards to assimilation. And this is like this is just like me reading a thing into it. That's not necessarily what Terry's trying for here, but it's still just like oh hey this hit a this hit a particular chord there mm-hmm. um, where where he's going through like the various races that have assimilated into Ankh-Mor Park, like the dwarves got through because they kept their heads down and prosper. 
the trolls come in and because they're a little bit tougher, they don't get picked on as much and they're just there. Then zombies, werewolves. And then when it gets to vampires, they think like there's a line. It's so now is dawning on some of the brighter vampires that the only way people would accept them was if they stopped being vampires. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think this is the intention that Terry's reading into it, but it, it, it does just like it, it clicks for me of just like a line that feels like something out of what what you would see in terms of like an 80s or 90s read of queer assimilation. Mm. Yeah. Of like, you know, it's like I don't think this is what he's trying to do, but it's like it's that vibe of that era of, you know, we'll take the gays, but the ones that are performing gender correctly and, you know, aren't too faggy. The ones who want to, you know, raise 2.5 children behind a white picket fence. Yeah. Relatedly, Justin, were you happy to see Beers back? I was very happy to see Beers back. Beers was, Beers was very good. I don't think they use his actual, its actual name in this no, I, I think they do. Uh, like they, I, I they, think they, they do. do. Okay. I remember seeing Beers and it was like, oh, hey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, they mention it. The ever-changing masthead misspellings I also... <laughs> Dearly love the truth. The truth will make ye fret. The truth shall make ye fret is is definitely you know, and then also you know troll bob bosses are apparently called tons. I love the introduction of Harry King. Um, yeah, Harry King is a great character. Justin, do you get the channel now? Yeah, and I, yeah, I got that. Yeah, because <laughs> it's for shit posting. Um, <laughs> but he he's got this like. I love his empire of like recycling and waste removal that he's figured out that people will both pay him to take away the waste. And then also others will pay him to buy that very same waste. So he's got this like incredible niche as a very smelly middleman. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the little bit of musing that we had on trade here of that, you know, the dwarfs in Ankh-Morpork. They send money home, and then that money is spent importing goods from Ankhmore Pork Dwarf Crafters, mm-hmm. who then send the money home, who then, you know, th- this kind of, like, um, view on, like, trade as this living, evolving thing, and that um, I-, I really liked also that it, a lot of the time when we think about narratives of like oh they're just gonna send the money home and the money's going to be gone forever out of our economy and it really was a direct counterpoint to that where it's being like no this is you know good because then it gets spent back and you know it keeps cycling Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about things that we do think have aged well i think the humor has um I think there's yeah. a tendency for comedy from like the early 2000s to like try and push the envelope. I'm looking at you, South Park, um, <laughs> in or or like perpetuate messages that we find dated. Um, and these are like especially along gender and sexuality lines. I think like Pratchett seems trustworthy in this department. Um, yeah, I, I I'm always worried when I pick up like a fantasy or a sci-fi novel from around this time he got that out of his system in the late 80s honestly okay (laughs) yeah i'd say like the first like three to seven books have like have some have some moments i particularly with Mm. race and and you've actually seen some of the some of that in weird sisters Mm -hmm. um where 
you'll probably recall that in Weird Sisters, like every other page is a comment about Magrat's tits or lack thereof. And it's mm-hmm. like, Terry, stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we got close to some stuff that was I was raising a question mark about with, with Sakurissa, but like the, the furthest he goes is describing her at one point as pneumatic or like, um, you know, that, that some of the dresses may need to be let out a little, but you know, overall he's getting better at describing female protagonists. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Sakurissa in general, I think is, is one of the standouts in terms of things that have aged well. Cause she's, she's never described as incompetent. She's always described as having multiple competencies that overlap but don't conflict with the word. Yeah. In fact, she, she's hyper competent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's given some runway and runs with it, you know. Mm-hmm. When it so, so we've talked about how the you know, take on the press, et cetera, hasn't aged well. There's one thing that I think has aged well, which is the Ankmore Pork Inquirer. Hmm. Um, yeah. Not so much time, the Times and DeWord and his investigative journalism, but the Ankmore Pork Inquirer as a tabloid and fake news that everybody just latches onto. And it's like, well, obviously, this is the thing. Like, mm-hmm. like this is more interesting. Therefore, it is true. Um, and that is the thing out of all of the. People, people's reactions to the Inquirer, especially around that breakfast table full of, mm-hmm. you know, conservative business, conservative middle class businessmen. Yeah. And there's a lot of tabloids of questionable repute that are less of what we Americans would think of as the National Inquirer. Um, yeah. Looking more like the Daily Mail and stuff, you know, especially, yeah. you know, this is like four or five, six years removed from Princess Diana's death and all of the all of the ways that the the british sort of lower third of the news uh, handles news where yeah. it's maybe true but probably not uh, i think i think all of that has aged uncomfortably well um the the degree to which people are ready to abandon the real news the real newspaper um, and just latch on to the fake news that's just churned out for clicks and uh, start spouting the stuff from that around the breakfast table like it's the truth. Anything that hasn't aged well, I mean, aside from the things that we've touched on before. I mean, <laughs> my note is looks at the current state of clickbait and hedge fund operated media. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm laughing or crying. Yeah. I think there's an optimism, and I, I I think we have touched on this, we'll be quick. There's an optimism that those in power deserve their power or are like the best option, mm-hmm. um, especially in a post-9-11, post-truth, you know, fake news environment. The ending where William reinstates Fetinari, molds the public narrative to glorify the watch, and protects his family name didn't, didn't sit right with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, that increasingly the, the take with veterinary, at least from, from Terry's perspective is that he's like the least bad option, mm. you know? And I think, I think that's also an ending that, so like I said, I've never, I've never felt like we were supposed to be entirely comfortable with that ending, but I think that that 
makes me a lot more uncomfortable now than the kind of vague sense of unease mm-hmm. and this could have gone better than I've had in mm-hmm. the past. That at this point, with with the things that have happened since 2000, um, yeah. that I think we've seen exactly that play out you know, more times than we can count. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ending to me really feels like the the whole the dog that caught the car thing, except that now the dog is driving the car and still has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because he's just like scrambling for the next edition mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, anything that we would have rather it had been done differently? Yeah. I mean, with the ending, I think if we want to redo, th- I, I think I think there's like, I think so far there's a rule, like Terry seems to have established a rule in Discworld is that Ankh-Morpork is going to be ruled by the Patrician. Unless there is a book specifically about removing Venonari and changing that, which I'm here for that, but I don't, that's not what it's trying to do here. This is what, like the fourth, I mean, fifth attempt? This is like the fourth, yeah, this is the fourth plot, I think, of like removing Venonari from power. I wish the conspiracy had been something different. <laughs> or is it just that the, the conspiracy constantly has to be removing Venonari from the plot? Because otherwise he'll solve it. Maybe I think maybe a little bit of column A, a middle, little bit of column B. Um, mm. That I think, I think Vetinari holds a great deal of power over the n- narratives of Ankh-Morpork and mm-hmm. having him sidelined. You know, it's like it's like when you have like a really powerful NPC, so you are like, I'm just gonna shove them in a box and you can't use them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then also, I, I think. I think I kind of like it because I kind of like that this is like literally the only thing that the old guard is capable of like conceiving of as how to change Ankh Morpork. It's mm-hmm. like they're just like, no, this time it'll work. This time, this time we'll remove the patrician and everything will go swimmingly. Mm-hmm. It's like, guys, the, the last four attempts didn't work. No, but but this time it will. That kind of like crazed um focus on a single goal is kind of amusing <laughs> you know not really not really they don't really have a concept now that that vetinar has built so many systems that the that the very city will will like fight against their attempts they're not really capable of making like real plans other mm-hmm. than just remove vetinari and everything will fall in place yeah, I, I, yeah. I hate to reference South Park, but it's definitely underpants gnomes territory. It does. I mean, at least they're they aren't trying for a king now. I thought they were trying for a new patrician with Scrope. They are, but it's like I mean, they're not they're not trying to put oh, somebody. Right, right. They're not trying to reinstate the office of king. Right. Yeah, because they know that carrots way too dangerous. <laughs> Taylor, you've got you've got some stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think I mentioned already that I, I would have liked to see a different ending. Um, I did also want to see more about that dark light and being confronted with the truth in actuality rather than the truth of your perception. Um, mm-hmm. Just because that yeah. was really compelling to me, uh, how Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip's <laughs> stories uh, ended. I, I think I, I mentioned it originally, but Mr. Tulip isn't haunted by anyone that he's killed. In fact, all of those ghosts are haunting Mr. Pin. Um <laughs> Mr. Tulip is actually just haunted by memories of a traumatic fire that happened in his childhood that I I think is maybe the impetus. And again, I am not familiar with this character, so I could be wrong. Um, But maybe the impetus for him uh, 
setting out on a life that set him with Mr. Pin in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would have loved yeah. to see more about that. Yeah, it kind of ends up being a kind of MacGuffin-ish. Mm. Like that it's it's used to further the plot, mm-hmm. but it's something... It's one of those things where you throw it in to move the plot forward, but it's so interesting on its own mm-hmm. that you're like, no, 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 stop focusing on right. that and come back to the plot. And everybody's like, no, 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 tell me more about this light thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the dwarves are like, Jesus Christ, don't use that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know we know about dark things. Yeah. Catching up on some some uh, Discworld references that you, I you know, the veterinary references Hollywood and music with rocks in, I sort of thought that they had re I I thought that they hadn't remembered that, but I guess I'm wrong. I Shrug. thought that it had been oh, and, and then closed. I mean like it, apparently it, it was something that was at least like remembered because uh Otto Otto <laughs> like when he's like instead of saying like let's rock and roll, he says music feed the rocks in Fucking love Otto. <laughs> uh, I also love the the return of the reference to Mr. Hong's three jolly luck takeaway fish bar on Dagon Street, which is a very funny recurring bit. My favorite was uh, Dibbler's dragon of unhappiness <laughs> and the concept of anthropomorphic personifications. That mm-hmm. apparently he is part of one of his cons. Like it worked so well that he managed to convince somebody that they're was a dragon of unhap a, a dragon of unhappiness in the toilet and that made that thing appear much to yeah. the chagrin of the person who owned that toilet. We learned through that story that CMOT had at one point dabbled in uh selling um feng shui to to people. Oh bye. Hmm. Um also we've got the veterinaries potential yeah. relationship with Lady Margolata in yeah. Uberwald, which is fun. Yep. I, I truly believe that Vatinari does not fuck, but he does like he has like emotional chess matches with people, yeah. and that's a substitution <laughs> for a relationship. <laughs> yeah, I was um, uh, before you said before you said that I was like erotic chess. Yeah. Um and then some round world stuff. Uh there's so many typesetting jokes in this. Um, Good Mountain, uh, if you translate it into German, it's Gutenberg. Uh, Kaslan, uh, is just a, it's a well-known, uh, older typeface. Uh, Bodney is referenced to Bodney. Gaudi is Gaudi. Like it's, it, there's, there's like a lot of just look at this thing that I know, uh, yeah. references in here. Uh, we touched on the, the Watergate stuff. Um, Mothman is referenced. Yeah, there's a moth there's a mothman reference. I love that. C commerce instead of e-commerce. Uh and I'm frankly surprised it's taken him this long to name a troll Rocky, especially a boxing troll. I had to go back to <laughs> I had to go back to moving pictures. Oh, that's because, right. There's rock. Right. I I or was cliff. sure that there I think it was Flint. Um Flint. I was sure that there was a troll named Rocky in moving pictures, but there wasn't. No. Although there was one sort of referencing Rock Hudson, I think. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a history thing here. Yeah. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm like very excited because I'm like, this sounds familiar. And then it gets and then it gets acknowledged in the author's notes at the end of the book. Um, so there is a there is a ref there's a, a description of Ankh Morpork's architecture 
which involves a thing where um Pork is built on top of itself um where and there was a ser- there was basically there's a description of the history of that they wrote they like basically put their street on top of another street and going into some very specific details about uh like the how you do that and this is based on a real life thing um in the 19th century, Seattle had a very uh, destructive fire that basically completely ruined its downtown. Um, and the city of Seattle's like, hey, it's free real estate. <laughs> um, and decided to embark on what is, I like, I, I encourage you to look this up because it's fascinating. They basically terraformed like a huge part of capital, of like their, of like the, of the Seattle landscape and created a mountain um, out of a, out of basically a cliffside. And they basically told landowners of like, you're going to get like, you're, you're going to get like reimbursed for stuff. But at one, at at some point part, your first floor is going to be underground (laughs) because we're just going to build up so that we can have like a stable, like more, more, Stru- structurally sound uh like geology that we're building on um it's fascinating stuff uh, if you're ever in seattle you can do a tour of the underground and they'll take you through like these under like you know this is like you know this used to be the ground floor of you know a bar and it's and it's like you know and you can see where the street used to be and where the street currently is and it's it's fascinating stuff and like yeah there's some articles you can look up online for it. And there's probably some great stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, but it's, 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 it is truly, it's just like, I, uh, like somebody's like uh, a friend of Aaron's had said like, Oh, you're visiting Seattle. Go, go take an underground tour. And it was like, I was like, Oh, there's probably like some like old druids or something down there. Like, cause they have earthquakes and stuff. And it was like, it was, it's really fascinating from like a, like massive, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a city engineering standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how he says sometimes a fantasy author has to point out the strangeness of reality. Yeah. So let's see a quick shipping corner, which we haven't had in a while. I, I'm real glad that we didn't end up with William and Sakharessa together. Yeah. Thank you. I, Thank you, yeah. Terry. I like them as as uh, editor and plucky female reporter. Mm-hmm. I, I wish that they were flipped. I wish that she was the editor. I feel like she'd be a better editor, but... Uh, any last business, or should we do the ratings? Let's go for ratings. I'm happy to rate. Um, okay. Uh, Anna, you want to lead us off? Sure. I will give this one whole Tasharoon. Ooh. Taylor, do you have a silly one, or do you want to do the what you have? I've got what I have here. This is a silly okay. one. I've, okay. I've rated this book one fun time with friends where I get to stretch my critical analysis and essay prep skills. Valid. Justin? I give it 37 out of 50 more words than my editor is asking for. And I will give it uh, 10 column inches set in 128-point Garamond. Okay, we have two bits that we need to do for the end of this. Two. Um, the first, as we do with any RPG-related, um, any RPG-related mm. guest we have on Complete Discography, Taylor, if you just given the option, if you were running a, if you were given the option to run a Discworld game, 
What would you want to do? Um, I would love to do. Uh, so I I really loved the witches. Um, and uh, there is a game called Wickedness. It's by M. Veselak. Uh, and in uh, it could very very easily uh produce some really incredible uh witch stories uh that that have. Great emotions, but also, uh, if you are funny enough and discworldly enough, uh, great hilarity. Oh, that looks really good. Excellent. I love these answers. I love, I love whatever we get on these. <laughs> yeah. All right. And now our second bit. Um, we, I, I, now that we are completely done with uh, the truth, I get to look at the back cover of the next book and we get to see what we're doing here. So that is book 26. We are five eighths of the way done here. Um, which I like that. That's a good fraction. Five <laughs> um, that is Thief of Time. Everybody wants more time, which is why on Discworld, only the experts can manage it. The venerable monks of history who store it and pump it from where it's wasted, like underwater, how much time does a codfish really need, to places like cities where busy denizens lament, oh, where does the time go? Well, everyone always talks about slowing down, one young horologist is about to do the unthinkable. He's going to stop. Well, stop time, that is, by building the world's first truly accurate clock. Which means esteemed history monk Lu Zay and his apprentice Lob Sang Lud have to put on some speed to stop the timepiece before it starts. For if the perfect clock starts taking time, as we know it, we'll end. And then the trouble really will begin. I can't believe you fucking wrote me into another time travel bullshit thing. Uh, it, it's the return of my favorite villains, the auditors. Lovely. Too gay to understand time travel. <laughs> <laughs> The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>